0: My voice. This might be very interesting. I don't. I don't think I've ever preached with a voice that's uh, completely gone. So we'll see what happens. Well, again, welcome to Grace Bible Church. A uh, little bit of a, little bit of an odd morning, but with uh, with uh, Phil being gone, but that's okay. The Lord is faithful and good, we'll make it through. Well, we're continuing this morning with our study in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 17-32. I promise, I promise to finish this section this morning, unless the Holy Spirit intervenes mid-sermon, but it, uh, I guess uh, the other uh, option is that my voice gives away, but, but we will uh, finish this section this morning. Uh, church, if you have trusted in Christ Jesus, you have been called to walk according to His commands. Jesus' commands, commands are profoundly simple. Things just become con- complex when we s- sinful humans are added to the mix with our convoluted problems and situations. But as a Christian, you have been made into a new creation, a new creation in Christ. You have been commanded to imitate Him, which brings Him glory. So what does this look The question is, what does this look like in our everyday lives? How does this affect our relationships with one another and with with the world? And what happens when we introduce suffering into the church? Friends, we are to bring glory to Him, to bring glory to Christ in all aspects of our lives, including the mundane and the spectacular. We will fail, though, right? Thankfully, there's grace when failure inevitably happens. So let's dive into Ephesians four to answer some of these questions this morning. Let me let me read Ephesians four verses twenty-five through thirty-two. If you would follow along in your Bible, Ephesians four, twenty-five through thirty-two. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, laying aside, all, or laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with, with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such, as a wor- such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that, he w- so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let me, read, let me pray one more time, and then we'll start. Heavenly Father, I just pray for your strength this morning. I'm not sure what's going on with my voice, Lord, but it's uh, not about me but about you. It's not about my strength, but your strength. Father, I pray this morning that you would work through my weakness as I preach your word. May you get all the glory. In Christ's name, amen. As many of you know, I've tried, uh, since uh, as being a pastor here at, at Grace Bible Church, I tread lightly regarding politics. I don't believe that politics are the answer to what ails us in this world. When God has given government, and He's given the church. He's given the each, each their purposes, but I don't believe that the, the government should interfere in the church. And the church, is not here to, the church is not here to govern the people either. And I believe that the people of God and the people of this world need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the sole mission of the church. The sole mission of the church is to take the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to the nations. Now, there are times, though, when the Christian needs to pay attention to what's happening on the political landscape. And I believe this is one such time. Because the government is beginning to interfere with church affairs, there seems to be a storm on the horizon. The 2020 election, this, this year that won't end, the 2020, has revealed a large rift between the various worldviews of this nation. Church, you need to recognize, you must recognize that your worldview as a Christian has been fully marginalized in our society, at least at the level of government. The beliefs that we hold dear are considered to be radical by many leaders in elected positions. Just this past week, several events happened, which I believe proved this to be true. On Thursday, the presidential candidates had competing town hall events. Joe Biden, the candidate, the Democrat candidate for president, was questioned by a mother who said her 8-year-old daughter is transgender. This little boy happens to be biologically a boy who is living as a girl under the guidance of her parents, or his parents, that is. Biden answered, There should be zero discrimination against an 8-year-old who wants to be transgender. So we have arrived at a place where it's mainstream for our youth to choose to be mutilated eight years before they can legally drive, and ten years before they can legally vote. Sick. Sick. The Christian belief that our gender is set at conception is now considered to be racist. That's where we are. And for those of you who are parents of young kids, don't expect to have any say in the matter. Because the government's now saying what you should do with your kids and how you should handle your kids. In this brave new world, you will have no authority over your child's life. I find it fascinating that in the competing town hall... President Trump was being called to denounce a conspiracy theory that many democratic elites are part of a satanic pedophilia ring. Now, I urge you, I urge you not to buy into conspiracies. You have the, the truth of the Word of God. But in this case, the truth is right before our eyes. When you have a, a, the, president, the presidential candidate who's saying it's discrimination if we don't allow an 8-year-old to do what they want to do in this regard. The confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett have also been incredibly interesting and have continued to bring out two distinctive worldviews. One of the more fascinating aspects of this exercise has been the preoccupation with Judge Barrett's religious affiliations. She happens to be Catholic, uh, a very conservative Catholic. During a break in the, the hearings, Diane Feinstein was caught on a hot mic saying fo- the following about Barrett. She says this, she's been pro-life for a long time, so I suspect with her it is deeply personal and comes with her religion. During a confirmation hearing back in 2017, she said this to Barrett. The, the dogma lives, lives loudly within you. It's a problem for, for Feinstein, right? That's a problem for her. That's, that Barrett might allow her religion to, to guide her in her decisions. She's ultimately concerned about Barrett's Catholic faith, which opposes the supposed right for a mother to kill her baby in the womb. The supposed right. According to Feinstein and others, we can't have that sort of person sitting on the Supreme Court. Ironically, just a day or so later, Feinstein was back in the news because she was too nice to bear it. Crazy enough, she was too nice. So at this point, Christian beliefs have been marginalized in the public square, and we are being slowly, or maybe not so slowly, sent underground to practice our faith. Now, some may think, even sitting in this room, some of you may think that I'm overreacting to some of these things. But I don't think so. I don't think so. Quite frankly, I believe the November election is going to be a watershed moment for our country. But based on the teachings of the New Testament, we should expect these things, right? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Paul Paul wrote to Timothy, he said this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. That's a promise. If you desire to live godly in this age, you will be persecuted. Brethren, as Christians, we are promised to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And I have to say that American Christianity has been a glaring exception to that truth. But I don't think it's going to continue. I don't think so. Interestingly, Paul encouraged the Colossians that it is a gift of grace to suffer for Christ. In Colossians 1.29, it says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So it's a grace gift of salvation, but it's also a grace gift of suffering. As a a Christian, or as Christians, we may want to avoid suffering and persecution. But I think it's unrealistic to believe that we can or will. Believe me, as I stand here, don't think that I have some morbid, morbid fascination with suffering. I don't. I'm not looking forward to it, in in one sense, for sure. Yet we must recognize that God has promised that we will suffer as Christians, we will suffer as individual Christians, and we will suffer as as a church. You may ask, can a whole church suffer for the cause of Christ? Can suffering and persecution come simply because we're associated with other Christians? The answer is a resounding yes, and I promise you that you will, if this if this these things come to pass, you will see this. Just being associated with a church will put you in a marginal position. Persecution will certainly become come upon a community of believers based on our doctrinal beliefs, and based on a perceived lack of submission to the governing authorities, based on lies concocted by those who oppose us. Unfortunately, many times persecution can come because individuals in the community don't act in a Christ-like manner. Peter told his readers in 1 Peter 3.20, he said this, For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated? What, what credit is it? If you endure it with patience, what credit is it if you sin and are harshly treated? We don't find favor with God in suffering because when we respond with lying and anger and hostility and discontentment and pride and rebellion. We find, we find favor with God when we respond to suffering in a humble way. When we suffer righteously. James, James tells us in James 1.19, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The context of James makes it clear that this command should be taken in the context of trials and persecution and suffering. We must recognize that both persecution and suffering are central to New Testament doctrine. Now we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul calls the church, the church to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the supernatural unity of the, of the Holy Spirit. Now, we must also understand that suffering for the sake of Christ is also central to Paul's message in this letter. Now, I would argue that it's central to his theme in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 3.1, Paul referred to himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He was imprisoned for the sake of the Gentiles because he had preached the gospel to them. And he refers to himself in the same way in Ephesians 4.1. Now you may recall that uh, that three chapter three is parenthetical in nature. Therefore, it said another way: chapter three is a tangent where Paul explains the ministry for the sake of the God, of the Gentiles, or his ministry, that is. So when he says in three one, he in four one that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he's just picking up on three one. So ultimately, the theme of chapter four we have to understand has an undercurrent of suffering. Indeed, Paul had been imprisoned for five years as he wrote this letter. Therefore, in 313, he asked the church at Ephesus not to lose heart at his tribulations. He was concerned that they would give up because their leader, Paul, had been imprisoned. And in 620, he calls himself an ambassador of the gospel in chains. Clearly, Paul had been called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Therefore, he calls the church at Ephesus to stand strong despite his suffering. Interestingly, in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul told them that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. The point is is that in standing strong against suffering in the the face of persecution, they were a demonstration to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that Christ had won. (coughs) In Ephesians 6.10, he urged them to be strong in the Lord and to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Well, beloved, the devil has many schemes, and one of them is to attack the unity of the brethren. And it's for this reason that in Ephesians 4, Paul encourages the church at Ephesus to walk worthy of Christ for the purpose of unity. Beloved, nothing threatens the unity of the church more than fleshly and unholy living, especially when persecution comes our way. Ultimately, persecution and suffering will purify the body of Christ but the purification that's coming will not be painless. Think about this in the context of the church in America, where we love our comfort, and there are many Christians who live unholy lives. This brings us to our passage this morning. In Ephesians 4, 17-32, Paul describes two main commands for the walk of holiness for the believer. He starts out with a negative command. We are not to live, we're not to walk as the Gentiles walk. We're not to live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their mind. They are dead in their trespasses and sins and are bound to their master whom Paul calls the prince of the power of the air, Satan. But as Christians, we have been raised up and seated in the heavenlies in Christ. We have been saved by grace through faith. We have been made into a new creation in Christ. Therefore, we are now to live in a different way, which reflects the commands of our new master. We had an old master, the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Now we have a new master, Christ Jesus. We're to live according to His ways now. Point two in verses 20 to 21, we are to live in a holy way. We are to live in conformance with the truth. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and our lives should reflect this glorious truth. Our minds are to be renewed according to 4.22-24. The unbelieving mind couldn't understand the things of God, but as Christians, our minds are being renewed. We've been made new so that we can understand the things of Christ. As believers, the old man has passed away, and the new has come. As a believer, you have been given a new identity in Christ. Therefore, you are to walk in consistency with His law. That would be the law of Christ. That's verses 25-32. through Said another way, we are to walk in consistency with our new identity in Christ, which brings Him glory. As believers... We are to do five things, five general things, according to this passage. Paul says we are to stop speaking lies and start speaking the truth. We're to stop sinning and lashing out and to start trembling before the Lord. We're to stop stealing and start sharing. Stop speaking filth and start using edifying words. Stop slandering and start being kind. First, he says, we, ought to, we must stop lying and start speaking the truth. This, this verse in 25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, uh, this, this points back to Zechariah 8, where, uh, which points to a future restoration of God's people where His kingdom, God's kingdom, will be a kingdom based on truth. In this coming kingdom, God's people will speak the truth to one another. Beloved, the church, the church is the forerunner of this coming kingdom. If you are now in Christ, who is the embodiment of truth, then we must learn to lay aside all lies and speak the truth with one another. Said another way, we must be a community of truth all of our interactions must be characterized by the truth of the Word of God. We must be lovingly willing to speak truth to one another. Beloved, this means that we should be a haven for those who love the truth. As such, we should be able to interact with one another openly because we are all committed to the same truth. This leads us to our second way, we are to walk in consistency with the law of Christ. And we are to stop sinning and lashing out and start trembling before the Lord. Look at verse 26. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now you may say, you're probably looking at your Bibles and saying, wait a minute. My Bible doesn't say, stop sinning and lashing out and start trembling before the Lord. It says something different. Well, let's take some time to unpack these verses. And starting in verse 26, he says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Many have taken these verses as being a call to righteous anger and indignation that doesn't lead to sin. Now, for sure, we certainly should be angered when we see injustice, immorality, ungodliness, any situation where God's glory is challenged. Jesus Himself expressed this type of anger when He cleansed the temple. Matthew Henry, the commentator, rightly captures this truth by saying, If we would be angry and not sin, says one, we must be angry at nothing but sin. And we should be more jealous for the glory of God than for any interest or reputation of our own. That is righteous anger. And that is a good thing. But I would argue that that's not exactly Paul's point here. You see, this is a quotation from Psalm 4, 4. Just like verse 25 was a quotation from Zechariah 8. Now, I believe that Psalm 4 is the key to understanding Paul's words in verses 26 and 27. So if you want to turn back to Psalm 4, I want to first note that Paul quotes exactly the exact phrase from Psalm 4, 4, which is in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, in Psalm 4, in Psalm 4, David, King David, is overwhelmed by suffering, injustice, and oppression. Just listen to the first three verses. David writes, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Now, stop right there. David is a godly man, and he's a man who is facing a crooked generation of men who are worthless deceivers. And he's calling out to God, and he's begging God to hear his prayer as he suffers at the hands of unrighteous men. Then David says this in 4, three. But know, but know, that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. You see, he knows, David knows, that God hears his prayers, that God hears his voice. And David also knows that God not only hears them, he will answer them. Now this leads us to the verse which Paul quotes in Ephesians 4. He says this, Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. You see, David says in this verse, David says the answer to suffering at the hands of godless men is to tremble and do not sin. The Hebrew word translated tremble has the idea of trembling with anger or fear. So clearly in in Psalm 4, David is saying that in these difficult situations, wait on the Lord, meditate on the truth of God's Word, and be still knowing that He will answer. Boy, if we would get that today, right? You know the all the things that are going on in our society as the pressure comes on the church. The answer is to know that we serve a sovereign God. The answer is to know that God hears our prayers. The answer is to seek Him in His Word and in prayer. So, back in Psalm 4, the trembling that is being referred to is... A trembling, not in anger, but in fear. Now you say, "Well, what kind of fear? Was he afraid on his bed? Was he afraid of those who were going to were making him or persecuted him, bringing oppression upon him?" No, he was fearing God. It's the fear of God, who is David's avenger. What what's being said here is that David is fearing the one who will take his revenge on those who are oppressing David now paul back in ephesians 4 quotes directly from the septuagint so what he's saying what what paul literally says back in ephesians 4 is tremble or be angry could be either one and do not sin now if you hold the new american standard bible you'll notice that, he add, that the translators add the word yet in italics. Anytime you see italics, it means that that's not in, that word is not in the original text. It's been added to help the reader understand the author's intention. In this case, I think it's added to smooth over what feels like a contradiction between anger and, and not sinning. How can you... Know, usually when you're angry you you're sinning so in this case it's anger yet not sin but i would argue but i would argue that paul's point is actually taken from the context of psalm 4 what we have to realize is that when the new testament authors quote the old testament what we have to recognize is that they're assuming an understanding of the passage quoted so when Paul quotes this small verse, part of a verse, from Psalm 4, what he's assuming is is that his readers understand the entire context of Psalm 4. And what's going on in Psalm 4 is David is being oppressed. So David goes and he lays on his bed, and he's trembling before the Lord. He's fearing God, because he knows God is going to be the one who will pay back his enemy. As I mentioned in the intro, the Ephesian church is under pressure, especially regarding Paul's imprisonment. The natural inclination is to lash out in unrighteous anger toward those who are unrighteous, right? That's what we do in our natural self. We lash out in anger. But I believe Paul is actually calling them to fear the Lord who will be the one to avenge them. Just like He would do for David, and just like He does for all of God's people, all of His people, right? I think there may even be a play on words here, because the word can legitimately be translated, be angry. As you know, when we're angry, very angry, we can physically tremble, right? You know, when you're really angry... You physically tremble. And and we physically tremble when we're afraid, right? Paul is saying, you should tremble. But not with the anger of man. You should tremble with the fear of Almighty God. Now, I believe this interpretation is solidified by the next phrases. And you may say, well, wait a minute. Seems like a contradiction. But just a second. Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So is it, is it anger? Well, that's where the play on words comes in. In reality, Paul uses a different, more. it's actually the same root at the end of verse 26. He uses the same root word, but it's intensified. He actually uses an intensified word. So, in reality, he's speaking of something different at the end of verse 26. And I believe he seems, to be, he seems to be, I would argue, that he's talking about human anger or wrath. And the idea is this, and here is the application. When you are wronged, you will tend to get angry. But don't continue in that anger. The answer to that anger... <coughs> The answer to that anger is to trust in the sovereignty of God. He will care for you. He will deal with your enemies in a truly righteous way because He deals from a righteous point of view. He has a righteous judgment. Therefore, using the Psalm 4 imagery, when you lay your head on the pillow, when you lay your head down at night, pray to God asking for deliverance from the situation. It's only right to ask the Lord to deliver us. Meditate on the truth of God's Word. Be still and wait for His answer. That's, the, that's, the, that's what Paul's point is. If we allow our anger, our human anger, to overtake us, then we're giving the devil an opportunity. And that's what Paul says back in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 27, if we continue in our unrighteousness, if we continue in our unrighteous human wrath, then we're giving the devil an opportunity. And guess what? He will take advantage of our weaknesses. He will take advantage of our divisions. And he will cause further disunity within the body of Christ. In your anger, you become a useful tool for the devil. Think about it. Think about it this way. Suffering comes. Persecution comes. You get angry about it. You lash out. The devil uses that against us. What... Paul is calling for the church to do is to trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust that He will avenge us. Trust in Him alone. This leads us to the third way we are to walk in consistency with the law of Christ. Paul says we need to stop stealing, start sharing. I want you to notice Something about verses 28 through 30. They're bound together by one word. By one word. Look at verse 28. Paul says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has what? Need. Need. The, the word translated need ties these verses 28 through 30 together. If you look at verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. According to the need of the moment. In verse 30, I would argue, is connected to this because if we don't, uh, if we don't do these things, then we're grieving the Holy Spirit. Let's unpack these verses starting in verse 28. Paul says, He who steals must steal no longer. Now we can infer that before Christ, when the Ephesians walked as Gentiles, they were those who stole to fulfill personal needs. Now, what we have to recognize is, is that there was no welfare system in Ephesus. There was no food stamp office, that's what it used to be called when I was growing up. There was no food stamp office to go get food, go get means to buy food. So they probably, the, the, the people of Ephesus, especially the poor folks in Ephesus, probably stole from the wealthy to support themselves and their families during times of need. So Paul is telling them, stop, don't do this. Look at your text in verse 28. He says, but rather, rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has needs. So Paul is saying, stop stealing, and start using your hands for what is good, specifically for work. Harold Honer says that the robber who had used his hands to work injury, but he's now to work that which is good. This brings to mind when John the Baptist was questioned in Luke, John the Baptist's question about repentance. He told the tax collectors not to take more than they were ordered to take. He told the, the soldiers not to take money by force or accuse someone falsely. Or, and he told them also to be content with their own wages. You see, church, when, when Christ saves you, everything changes. You're made into a, a new man, into a new creation. And we're to live, we're to walk according to His law. That'd be the law of Christ. friend if you are listening and you say my life hasn't changed i'm really no different then you may you may not be saved if you are truly saved if you're truly in christ the old things passed away the old things are gone behold new things are come you are a new creation in christ your desire should be to please your lord Brings you glory or brings him glory and brings you joy. Throughout its pages, the Bible speaks highly of working hard for your food and clothing. In Genesis chapter 2, God placed the man in the garden to cultivate it. This was done before the fall. So, work was part of God's very good creation. Throughout Proverbs, we see warnings against slothfulness. I didn't write down where this is at, but I'll read it anyway. It's, it's starting in verse 6. I wish I knew which one it was, but which chapter? Maybe somebody can find it. But it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no t- chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come like a come in like a vagabond, and your need like a armed man. Proverbs six. Yeah. So, so I, that was Proverbs six six through eleven. In Second Thessalonians three ten, Paul says that if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So clearly the Bible teaches that laziness and stealing are sinful while God considers work <coughs> work to be good. Yet we must be careful when we consider the reason for our work. In the current context, we are to work so that we will have something to share with those who have need. In other words, when others have lack, we are to share the fruit of our labor with them. We tend to think, as Americans, as good old Americans, we tend to think of our work as enriching ourselves, right? We have our vacation plans, and we have our retirement plans, but we forget God's plans. We forget that God calls for us, To share in the harvest of our labor. We have cavernous homes and fancy cars, yet we forget those who have nothing. Beloved, there should be no person within the body of Christ who has need. James 2.15 says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and any one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? He goes on to say that that sort of faith, you, you say you have true faith, but that sort of faith is a dead faith, because it's not accompanied by works. That faith has no works. Now you might say to me, "But, but Pastor, I thought we were saved by grace, the, by grace through faith. That not of ourselves, not not as a result of our works." Well, that's true, but we're saved unto good works. And James says, James says that we demonstrate. We demonstrate our true faith by being willing to help those who are in need. Now, let's be clear, though. Let's be clear. Each of us as Christians are called to work to fulfill our own needs first, right? I mean, we're to work to take care of, what, of our own. We're not to sit back and wait on, on others to feed us. That was Paul's point in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Those who don't work don't eat either, right? So if you're not willing to work, if you're lazy, then it's not the other person's job to take care of you. St. Augustine captures this by saying, Pray as though everything depended on God. Work as though everything depended on you. If you don't pull your own weight, then you're a sluggard. You're lazy and you don't deserve to be helped. Some may think that I'm being harsh. But it's the Word of God. Now, we should also say that God sometimes blesses His people with wealth. We can gain great material blessings by following God's wisdom. Notice... In Proverbs, the ant didn't lack for food, right? When you work hard, you get, you, you, at times, and many times, you become ble- are blessed. The question, though, is what are you going to do with those material blessings? It becomes a heart issue. The subject always reminds me of John D. Rockefeller, who went to church all his life. He became incredibly rich in the late 19th century. He once said, the only question with wealth is, what do you do with it? Now, I think I would change that to say, the only problem with wealth is, what do you do with it? That's the problem with wealth, is it brings great responsibility. Now, I would argue that we need to understand the background of Paul and James' exhortations to share with those who have need. They're talking about true need. A need which could be caused through something such as natural disaster, maybe famine or a storm. Or it could be caused by persecution which leads to suffering for righteousness' sake. Just imagine trying to find a job and finding out that you can't get a job because you're a Christian. Because you identify with the church. And you can't get a job, and if you can't get a job, you can't feed your family. Don't you think that might turn into great need at some point? That's what was happening in James. True believers were being marginalized because of their faith in Christ. They were unable to get jobs. And rich landowners, if you read deeper into it, were using them, and they were withholding their pay. Pay that was they would have used to feed themselves. Therefore... In James 2, they were going to others in, church, in the church who had the ability to help. But they refused to do so. Probably because those rich brothers didn't want to lose their standing in the community. Think about that. So the poor brethren were starving and even dying. And James says they had their, had their blood on their hands. Back in Ephesians 4, Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to work and share with those who had need. This would bring unity among the brethren and is pleasing to Christ. The, church, the call is no different today. You, as Christians, and I are called to work hard. We're called to work hard with our hands, doing that which is good. We're to share with those who have need. This starts with setting aside and regularly giving to the Lord as sacrificial worship. As a a church and as individuals, we must be willing to sacrificially give to those who have lack of necessities. As a church, we must be quick to use God's money for ministry, for the good of His people. We should never be tight-fisted when we know that there is a need. When there is a demonstrated need, we need to be running to help. And we don't have to worry about the coffers running dry. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about your checking account going empty. You don't have to worry about your retirement. You know why I say that? Because God will always supply what we need. Now, I'm not saying don't be a good steward. Yes, be a good steward. But don't let the excuse of being a good steward keep you from helping when someone truly has need. Hudson Taylor says this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Do you get that? If we do what God wants us to do, He will supply all our needs. That goes for the church That goes for you as an individual. That goes for your family. If you follow Christ, you will have your needs met. I didn't say it would be comfortable necessarily. Right? I didn't say it would be easy. But you will have your needs met. This leads us to the fourth way we are to walk in consistency with the law of Christ. Stop speaking filth and start using edifying language. Look at verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. You see, before Christ, many of us had potty mouths. As my mama used to say, we needed them washed out with soap. It's funny, she never did it to me. She probably should have but I never had my, wa- my mouth washed out with soap. Some of you may have. I know, I know people who had that happen to them. Evidently, uh, this potty mouth problem was a problem in Ephesus as well. The word translated unwholesome could be used of, of rotten, or withered, withered flowers, or rancid fish. It could refer to that which was useless, or it could refer to something that was foul or putrid. This word always makes me think of drinking spoiled milk. A horrible thought, right? Can you imagine, you know, it's dark and you want a nice cold glass of milk and you go to the refrigerator and you pour a nice cold glass of milk and you don't realize that it's rancid and you take a big swig of it. That's this word. Jesus said, Jesus said that that which proceeds out of the mouth is what defiles a man. James says in James 3.19 that with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Look back at verse chapter 4, verse 29. Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is as is good for edification according to the need of moment. Whereas we are to work, physically work, to share with those who have physical need, we are to stop using unwholesome words and start using words which build up our brothers and sisters in Christ spiritually. I believe he's talking about a spiritual need here. So the, the first verse, with working, is a physical need. We're to fulfill their physical needs. But the second verse, uh, verse 29, now is talking about spiritual need. So we're, start, we're to start using words of truth. Words of truth which come in different forms, right? Words of truth like encouragement, exhortation, reproof. Correction, training for righteousness' sake. You see, when we do these things, when we, when we use these types of words, we build people up and we give grace to the people who hear. In other words, the body of Christ has many lacks and needs spiritually, and beneficial words contribute to the individual growth and fulfill fill the spiritual needs of the body. In Colossians one twenty eight, it says, "We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ." The point is, is that we use our words. We use our words to to admonish. We use our words to teach. We use our words to teach wisdom, and so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The point is, is we build up the body with our words, instead of using words that. Instead of using words that tear down, right? In, in, in families, when, when, people, when mothers and fathers use words that tear down, it, it destroys the family. In, in churches, when we use words that tear down, it destroys the church. When we use words that build one another up, it builds up the church. You must be careful. We are accountable. You are accountable for every word that you say along with the tone, along with the tone. We must take care that our words are not unprofitable. Men, let me tell you, every word you say to your wife and kids affects them. Every word, every time you use a poor tone, It affects your wife and kids negatively. Believe me, they will come back someday and tell you. And you will be ashamed. Ladies, this goes for you as well. Your kids hear and internalize every single word. Every single word. Our words can be used to build up our families or tear them down. And in the church, our words must be beneficial. Look at verse 30. Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's not good when we fail to fill the physical needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is especially not good when we don't meet the spiritual needs of the body. When we fail to use edifying words to build up the body, these things grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The idea here is, a, is, is sorrow. That The Holy Spirit has brought sorrow, great sorrow, when we don't do these things. On a side note, it follows that if He can be grieved, that the Holy Spirit is a person, not an inanimate object. The Holy Spirit is a person. And when we fail to use and speak, when we, when we fail to speak wholesome words uh, which build up the body of Christ, we bring great sorrow to the Holy Spirit. What we have to understand is, is that we've been, as a church... We've been supernaturally sealed and secured by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. He has made us into His dwelling place and supernaturally fitted us together. He has given us unity and peace, and we grieve Him when we fail to build one another up in love. This leads us to the last two verses, which go quickly. I wrote... Stop seething and slandering and start being kind. Look at verse 31. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The word translated bitterness means to have a resentful attitude over something that's happened. This is a bitterness of the human spirit which can grow over time and can even begin to encroach upon our very personhood. It begins to mark us for who we are. In in time, bitterness can overtake us, and we can become the actual embodiment of bitterness. You and I both, we've all been around truly bitter people. It is never pleasurable to be in their presence, especially someone who has nursed bitterness for years who has held on to things for years. They've resented things that have happened to them, and they've held on to it, and they refuse to let it go. The words translated wrath and anger are similar to one another. One may refer refer to the inner seething, passionate anger at the heart of a man or a woman, while the other may refer to the outbursts of anger ultimately one leads to the other we can fume over a wrong done to us for long periods of time some of us can fume over these things for years and even decades eventually this anger though will erupt in a fury that engulfs us and those around us the word translated clamor means to mean shout to shout or, or have abusive speech we, we see a, an escalation here from uh, something has happened to us, something negative has happened to us, and we begin to be bitter, and there's an inner seething, and then we, we have outbursts of anger which results in uh, abusive speech. When you get angry, I mean really boiling hot, you can blow your top and really start to give folks a piece of your mind, right? We've all we've all seen it. Maybe you've done it. Many times this can turn into, many times this does turn into abusive speech. The word translated slander means to speak against people and ultimately to blaspheme God. In our anger, we can begin to say things to to hurt the other party. We can even begin to question the goodness of our Lord because of our circumstances. So we blaspheme him. Bitterness, going back to bitterness, it, it deals with your general attitude. Wrath and anger have more to do with your overall disposition toward what has happened. Clamor and slander refer to the, your use of words toward those who have angered you. You've been, you were angered by those who you have perceived to have wronged you. But ultimately, ultimately, and this goes back to verse 26. Ultimately. You shake your fist at God blaming Him for being in this predicament. It's His fault. He's the one who's put you in this position. But what did David say? David said, go and meditate on the truths of the Lord. Tremble, right? Tremble and fear God. Wait on the Lord. How much better off would you be if you'd chosen not to let the sun go down on your anger. That's the point. That's the point. You must let God be the avengers of wrongs committed. It's not that we are neutral, right? But we know that He's sovereign. Look at verse 32. So Paul says... Let all these this bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, along with all malice. And he says this: be kind. Be kind. Verse thirty-two is incredibly straightforward. We're called to be kind to one another. We're sh- to show regard to one another. The idea is to have to be pleasant, agreeable, and and good. We need to understand though that this is a supernatural work. The word is used in uh, of God in, in Ephesians 2 7. He says, So that in the ages to come, so He has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is not something, this kindness that Paul is talking about is not something that we can do outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5:22 says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Beloved, you can only show this sort of kindness, especially toward those who've wronged you because you've been saved by Christ text says goes on to say we are to be tender hearted this word has the idea of showing compassion it's that feeling in, in our gut we get in our gut when some, when we see someone in need most of you have experienced this feeling when you watch a movie that pull, pulls at your heartstrings you know you you see these things and you have that feeling in your gut this word is used of Jesus on several occasions including Matthew 9:36 He says this, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That's the idea, this idea of tender-hearted. Tender-hearted toward one another. Look at your text in verse 32, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Literally, this means to give grace to one another. Just as God in Christ has given grace to you. That's literally what it says. Here's the deal. You didn't do anything to be saved by God's grace. You've been saved by grace through faith, that not of yourself, so that no man may boast. According to that verse, you've even been given the faith to believe. Therefore, we should give grace to those who wrong us. especially fellow believers. C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. You need to be willing to forgive. Literally to give grace because you've been forgiven much. You must, be, you must forgive those who wrong you, and you must be ready, you must stand ready to receive them. Because God has forgiven us and has kindly received us. Friends, if you are in Christ, I beg you to take heed of verse 32. I beg you to be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, giving grace to each other because you have been forgiven in Christ. As I said earlier in the sermon, I think maybe hard times are coming to our doorsteps. We've already, if you watch social media, we've already seen an incredible amount of divisiveness in the church. If you're a believer here today, then I beg you to cling to Christ. Cling to the one who died on the cross for your sins. If you're an unbeliever, I beg you to turn to Christ. He has endured the the fury of the Father to pay for your sin, if only you would believe. Paul Paul says that it's in Christ that we have redemption. Through His blood. Through the blood of the cross. We have been redeemed. If you stand here today, if you sit here today, if you're listening today and you don't know Him, you, you can have no assurance. You face the wrath of God outside of Christ. Come. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't think, I will come later. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior, if you're not trusted in the work of Christ on the cross, come. Come. Christ beckons you to come. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You this This day, praise you for your goodness to us. Father, I thank you for your strength to preach today. Thank you for carrying me through this Time. father i pray that your word your word is powerful father i pray that you would use it we know according to isaiah 55 that your word will not return void father we thank you and praise you thank you for this church thank you for all those who are here I pray for those who couldn't be here today that you would be with them And bring them back safely. Father, I pray for this church. I pray that we wouldn't take lightly what all that is happening in the world. Yet, Lord, I pray that we would not be angry, but we would wait on you. That we would tremble at your word. Lord, think of Isaiah 66. To this one I will look, to the one who's humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at your word. Father, may we be those type of people. In Christ's name, amen.